Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's Word? You can find it printed in your bulletin. You can follow along in your own Bible, Psalm chapter 8, the 8th Psalm. Let's read this together. I'll read out loud if you would follow along in your bulletins your Bible, Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes, to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning as we look together at this psalm, Psalm chapter 8, that you would indeed direct our thoughts that you would stir our affections, that you would point us to your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would know more of you, that we would see more of you, that we would trust more in you, that we would be made more like you, that we would worship and honor and glorify you all the days of our life. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Would you please be seated? I have to tell you, I have found it interesting, maybe even a little astounding, to consider the success over the last 20 years of these, these businesses, these companies that trace family genealogies. Okay, like Ancestry.com, I think that's one of the big ones. So apparently the way these things work is you pay the money, okay, they send you a little test tube, you spit into the tube, you send it off to them, somehow they figure out something of your DNA, and they send you back this whole report of your family history. And you find out who you're related to and how you're connected to them, and you find out things about your ethnicity and your heritage and and for many people, from what I've heard, who do this, they find out these wonderfully exciting things about their family history. I've encountered people who say to me, just found out last week I'm like the 16th cousin to George Washington. Isn't that amazing? Or like third uncle twice removed of the captain of the Mayflower. And, and for many people, sometimes this is so significant that they will take and they'll make for themselves a family tree and they'll post it right on their living room wall, okay, almost to talk about the value and the dignity and the worth of having this 
amazing connection to someone in your family history. Oftentimes, when I hear someone tell me about their genealogy, one of my first thoughts is to think of what that experience is like for the downtrodden and the outcast. I, I wonder what that experience is like for someone who doesn't have that type of family history. Maybe in their family there's a lot of brokenness and failures. I often think about the children who come into our homes through the social services, into foster care, children who have three and four generations of incarcerated men in their families, or absentee mothers, or someone whose family tree is kind of lost because of slavery or because of a refugee status. I wonder for them what it's like to look at their family tree. I imagine for every person who wants to paste that family tree on their living room wall, there's another person who wants nothing to do with, not to consider or think about their family heritage. And there's a big question of value and worth and dignity for that type of person. I think that the question of dignity and worth and value is an intrinsic built in the human heart by God design that we often long for dignity, worth, and value. Those things go hand in hand with purpose and meaning, right? As we think about the purpose and meaning in life, so we think about dignity, value, and worth. I have to tell you this morning, this psalm, Psalm chapter 8, deals with this very thing. The dignity of humanity. Essentially, the question that this answers is, what is my existential worth? What is my weightiness? What is my significance? Of, uh, am I of any value in the grand scheme of things? And if I am, what is it rooted in? Where can it be found? Now, I told you two weeks ago, I think there's a very simple way to look at the Psalms. It goes like this, okay? When I fill in the blank, Psalm fill in the blank tells me that God fill in the blank, okay? Every Psalm can be read like that. For every problem that we have, for every question that we ask, there's a Psalm that tells us something about God that answers that question, okay? So here's how it goes this morning for Psalm chapter 8. When I lack dignity... Or I wonder, where's my value and worth? When I lack dignity, Psalm 8 tells me that God crowns me with glory and honor. Psalm 8 tells me that God crowns me with glory and honor. That's where we're going this morning. That's what this psalm is all about, okay? So we're going to unpack Psalm 8, we're going to talk about it, and I think you'll see at the end of the morning how this psalm answers that most important question in the minds and hearts of all men and women who have ever lived. Now, as we think about this psalm this morning, I have to tell you from the beginning, this psalm is a slightly different structure than maybe you're used to, okay? So here, let's talk about the structure of the psalm just for a second. Many people have referred to the structures. uh, Many poems in in the psalms and the proverbs are written like this. They've referred to it as a chiastic structure. That's a 50-cent theological term. You don't need to know the term What I often like to think of when I encounter a psalm like this is I like to describe it as a mountaintop psalm. Okay, so if you're drawing in your bulletin, go ahead and draw a mountaintop. Mine has a snow peak, snow-covered mountain. Okay, 
a mountaintop psalm. And what we mean by that is that the goal, the purpose, the focus of the psalm is not found at the beginning or at the end. It's actually found in the middle, okay? So in the psalm, there's a movement towards the focus. There's a movement away from, but the focus of the psalm is found in, in the very middle, okay? So as we look at it this morning, I'll tell you the focus of the psalm can be found in verse 5. That's your mountaintop. Now we know that we're looking at this type of psalm for a number of indicators, not the least of which is the beginning and the end. We said the repetition, right? Verse 1 and verse 8 are the same words, repeated at the beginning and the end, meant to indicate to us that we're beginning and ending in the same place, that the movement of the psalm is somewhere in the center of the psalm, and it can be found in verse 5. Verse 5 is actually the, the very middle of the psalm. You count the Hebrew words, you're going to end up in verse 5, all right? And at the end of verse 5, God crowns us with glory and honor. In the chiastic structure, the design of the psalm is so beautiful, okay? Because we don't do this. As I said, we, you think about a sermon. We start with a big idea and we move away from it. Or we, we end with a big idea and we move towards it. That's why you sit in a sermon and you say, okay, so the pastor's moving to that big idea. He's going to get there at the end. And, then, and, and sometimes you're like, well, where was the big idea? I missed it. That's, that's the way we think. Not so for Hebrew poetry. Sometimes it's built like this. It's beautiful, okay? What we know about this then is that that first verse and the eighth verse are the foundation on which the final idea is built. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Whatever we conclude in verse 5 is predicated upon the truth that the Lord God is majestic. What happens in the psalm then is we move through the beginning, which I would call the celestial observations. We move away from, which I would call the terrestrial observations. If you're unfamiliar with those words, this is the heavenly, this is the earthly. Heavenly observations and terrestrial observations that move us from the majesty of the Lord God to the conclusion in verse 5 that the Lord God crowns us with glory and honor. As it were, when you look at the structure of a psalm like this, you know that as you get closer to the main idea, you kind of begin to heat up or warm up and get closer and closer to that central thought. And so verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? Verse 6, you've given him dominion and you've put all things under his feet are the supporting ideas that lead us to the conclusion that the Lord God has crowned man with glory and honor. So that's the central idea of this psalm. As you hear that sentence read aloud or spoken, you may have picked up on a very important observation. There's royal language in verse 5, okay? You're meant to hear the Lord God has crowned him with glory and honor, and you're meant to think like Buckingham Palace, like the coronation of a king, okay? That's the message that's being communicated in verse 5 when you think of, of man and woman created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. This morning, then, as we look at this psalm, I just simply wanted to answer the question, how, how does the Lord God crown us with glory and honor? There are three observations, primarily in the middle of this psalm, that answer that question for us. How has God crowned us with glory and honor? First observation, we find it in verse 5, the beginning of verse 5. He has made him a little lower than the heavenly being. Okay, I, I would say as I think about the point that can be drawn from that is we are made in His image. And if you can't read my handwriting, this is all on the insert in the bulletin, okay? 
He has made us in his image. Now, the word image never appears in Psalm chapter 8. It never appears. Verse 5 does say that he has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. There's some debate about how this verse ought to be interpreted. Some people say it should be that he has made us a little lower than God. He has made us a little lower than the angels. Or he has made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. The message that's being communicated is in the, in the work of creation which God did at the beginning of the foundation of the earth. That he made the man and the woman to bear his image. To be under him but over all creation. And to have his character and his attributes. And to execute these things with authority over the creation. As a matter of fact, Psalm 8 is one of maybe a dozen psalms that's actually meant to be read right next to Genesis 1. Okay, so you could pull up the creation account, then you could read Psalm 8, and you would be seeing two different perspectives of the very same thing. Psalm 8 is a perspective of creation, okay? And you see it. It's moving through the the works of his fingers and the creation of the stars and the making of man and, and setting man over all of creation. It's a, it's a beautiful retelling of the creation account. And not only does verse 5 say that he's made him in his image, he's made him uh, a little lower than the heavenly beings, but it also tells us that he has made us, which is significant. Not that God created all the animals and then one day said, man, look at that man. He's a really good animal. I'm impressed with that version of the animals I've created, but rather that, that man was created uniquely to bear the image of the living God. That this is one of the ways in creation and from conception that we are crowned with glory and honor by the living God. I've been thinking about this very idea. As I said, as I was praying, four babies born in our congregation in the last 14 days. It's amazing, okay? And there's more babies coming. Totally exciting. And I, one of the privileges, you think about the hard things a pastor does and the privileges, one of the privileges of being a pastor is going to visit newborn babies, okay? You get to go into people's homes. You meet babies, which are always so cute and beautiful. You get to pray for them. You get to meet in-laws. I mean, it's just the, the most wonderful thing that pastors get to do. So, Three babies. I'm going to visit the fourth this week. Three babies in the last 10 days I got to visit. Every time I go into the home, I get to pray. We have good conversation. And there's always a, a conversation. It starts in different ways, but there's always a conversation about how new life tells us that there's a creator. Isn't that amazing? But you know, as I'm going through my week, I was thinking, you know what? New babies tell us even more than that there's simply just a creator. New babies tell us so much about our creator. You, you look at life from the beginning, you look at a new child, you say, wow, that, that child has desires, right? It has thoughts. It communicates. He or she communicates. Not in the way that we would communicate, but it communicates. It wants things. It thinks things. I mean, new life is absolutely amazing in a different way than any observable other life that we can see in all of creation, okay? We, we had chickens at our home like three months ago. The the hatching of chickens was beautiful, but it was nothing like new human life, okay? That tells us so much of our creator God. He has made us in his image, and that by making us in his image, bearing his qualities and attributes, we have been crowned with glory and honor. And so in that, we derive dignity, value, and worth. O. Palmer Robertson, who's quickly becoming one of my favorite 
pastors and theologians. O. Palmer Robertson, as he was preaching on Psalm 8, he said this. He said, listen, the galaxies and the millions of stars are a cacophony of power and beauty and majesty, and yet stars remain silent over the centuries. They see nothing. They speak nothing. They think nothing. They have no feelings and no creativity. In all these ways, only man is like God. That's the conclusion being made in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. It's the first observation, I think, from the psalm. The second observation is that he has given us dominion over the works of his hands. He has given us dominion over the works of his hands. That, we can reference these if you're looking for them. This was in verse 5. This can be found in verse 6. At the beginning of verse 6, it says that uh, you have made man and you have given him dominion over the works of his hands, uh, over the works of your hands, okay? And dominion, you're probably familiar, is a word that means to have authority and to have power and to have control over. And in case there was any doubt that this psalm was meant to be read together with the account of creation, here's another, you know, obvious indicator, right? The word dominion. The word dominion appears in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us make man in our image. Let him have dominion over the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. It's the same exact Hebrew word. It's lifted out of Genesis 1, plopped right down in Psalm chapter 8. And the psalmist has now indicated to us, this is a retelling of creation. Okay? And so our attention is drawn back to that moment when God says he will have dominion over the earth. He will have dominion over the things created. That man will have authority that he will have control, that he will have power as a representative of the living God. So let me ask you a question. What do you think? Do you believe that you have dominion, authority, control, and power over all creation? Think about it. Do you think that you have dominion, power, control, authority over all creation? And if you're wondering, well, I don't know. I, like, I, I had a pretty good hike yesterday. I conquered a mountain. I feel like I have dominion over creation. Let me ask you a few questions, okay? Uh, the last time that bacteria or a virus entered through your nose or mouth, down through your throat, into your lungs, and lodged itself in your bronchioles, were you able to say, virus or bacteria, leave me now? Be gone. Yeah, you wish, right? If anybody's able to do that, we need to talk afterward. You have a gift set. Be very valuable. Uh, when rodents and bugs enter into your home, are you able to say, now leave my house, and they obey your command? I doubt it. Can you speak to the wind and to the weather and to the rain and the lightning and the thunder? Can you command the waves? Do you have authority over all creation? Are you able to say to sickness and cancer, be gone with me? Can you command death to leave? Do you exercise dominion over any of these things? Do you? I mean, Really? Of course not, right? If you think about the actual relationship, if you meditate for a second, you will quickly realize that it actually seems as if creation exercises dominion over you. Well, that's what it feels like, doesn't it? So what's going on, right? Why does Psalm 8 say that the Lord God has made man and given him dominion? Well, there's a few things going on. Our New Testament passage this morning from Hebrews chapter 8, really helpful at this moment, Okay. As a side note, Psalm 8 is quoted four times in the New Testament. 
twice by the Apostle Paul, once by Jesus, once in this letter to the Hebrews. And here is where the specific verses we're looking at right now are quoted. Beginning in verse 5, it says, For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come. So first of all, we're thinking about new heavens and new earth here. But it's a corollary to what we've just been talking about. Of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. Well, we now know where that where is, okay? It was testified in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay, that's like half the psalm we just read, quoted in Hebrews 2. Now what's going to happen is the writer of Hebrews will now tell you the meaning of the psalm. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is Jesus Christ, he left nothing outside his control, that is Jesus Christ's control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Two very important principles come out of Hebrews chapter 2. First of all, Psalm 8 is primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't miss that, right? And as Jesus said while he was walking on the road with those two disciples, as he opened their eyes to see that everything that was written about him in the Old Testament so we see now in Psalm chapter 8, so is this psalm about him. For man who was created in the garden to have dominion and to exercise that dominion, failed in that nature. Sin entered into the world and no longer do we have dominion as we've been designed to have. No longer can we exercise perfectly that authority given to us. Until the second Adam came, he who perfectly obeyed the Lord God the Father in all that was required of him, exercises dominion over all creation, and now through his death on the cross, perfectly has authority and dominion over that creation, even death. This is the dominion that's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 2. But more importantly for our conversation this morning, look at what it says as, uh, after that reading in verse 8, at the end of verse 8, at present. That would be at this moment. At this moment, what? What is true? We do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. At this moment, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. What does that mean? It means through the eyes of the world, through the observation, the plain observation that you might make any given day, right? That Jesus Christ was one who was crucified, and then the story was over. That's the conclusion of many in the world the observation the eyes might make. But the reality is that Christ is resurrected over the grave and He exercises dominion from His throne where He is seated on high and reigns forever. That eyes do not see does not change the reality that it is indeed true and that it will always be true. And the corollary then for us is that just as Christ is raised from the grave, exercises dominion over all creation, so those who are joined by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ will one day exercise that same dominion. That if you think about it, when Christ says, if you have faith, you may say to this mountain, mountain, get up and go into the sea, that the mountain will do it, that this is simply a picture of what will one day be ours when we have perfect dominion over a new heaven and new earth by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who indeed has gone before us. One commentator, a German commentator, when, in writing about this 
psalm, he said this, the New Testament thereby concentrates the entire mystery of human existence that is brought to light in Psalm 8 on the Son of Man come from heaven, Jesus Christ, and on the coming age that has dawned through his humiliation and exaltation at a time when we truly will exercise dominion over all creation. What's being spoken about in this psalm is a promise that was made in the garden that was lost at the fall, secured by the perfect Son of Man, and will one day be ours in Christ Jesus. That's what it means that He crowns us with glory and honor. Third observation I would make then from the psalm is not only are we promised this dominion, but He puts all things under our feet. He puts all things under our feet. And if you're reading along in the psalm, you'll see that's the second part of verse 6. It says, you've dominion, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. And as we continue reading in this psalm, there's a list then of the things under the feet of man. All sheep and oxen and beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. These are the things that have been put under the feet of man. Now, if you, maybe you picked up on this, and maybe you didn't. There's a beautiful structural picture in Psalm 8 that helps us to visualize everything that's being described. Think about this. We began at the top of the psalm, at the top of the page, as it were, and we began with God. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we continued through the heavens and the stars, and we moved down to the man, and now we get the things that are under the feet of man at the feet of the psalm. Isn't that amazing? You could read this and you could literally go down the list and you could say, oh, there's a picture of everything that was just described to me. Now, my, if your Bible's like mine, it doesn't help because the end of the, the chapter is actually at the top of the page. It goes around and so the picture is a little bit ruined uh, because of the way it's recorded in some of our Bibles, but it's a visible picture of the very thing that's being described here. You have put all of creation under the feet of man. Now, again, what does that mean? How does that help us to understand who we are and how the Lord God crowns us with glory and honor? Well, again, I would point you to the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. The Jesus, again, quotes this psalm in Matthew. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. In both of those times, he quotes... This verse, so if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, this is Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a beautiful letter. The whole first chapter is an amazing introduction to the letter. And at the end of that chapter, in verse 22, it says this, And he, that is the Father, put all things under his, that is Jesus Christ the Son, he, the Father, put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The New Testament tells us that what the psalmist means by putting all things under his feet is that first and foremost, Jesus Christ, by his obedience to the Father, through his death on the cross, by accomplishing all that was set out before him for the redemption of mankind, that all of creation has now been put under his feet. That is that he has authority over all. It's very similar to having dominion. 
And Paul will take this one step further in 1 Corinthians 15 because we can easily envision the Lord Jesus Christ as being king, king over nations and king over peoples and king over times. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he has subjected all things under his feet and the last enemy to be put under his feet is what? It's death. We just sang about that. I think two of the songs we sang this morning had that very idea in there. The last enemy to be subject under Christ's feet is death. You think about it, even the ethereal, hard to understand things of this world, like sin and death, these things are now subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has authority, all, all authority, all power, all, all control that he, he says and they do. And he commands and they bow. That he determines and they follow sin, death, and all of creation. But Paul also in Ephesians 1 adds something I think is really helpful. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22 is, in the English, it's two sentences. I think it's meant to be just one sentence. It's a long Pauline sentence, okay? It's all the same idea. And in verse 18, as Paul is moving towards this idea that all of creation has been subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says this. This is practical for us. The Spirit is now at work, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That moves us to the subjection of Jesus Christ, that all things are under his feet. What does that mean? The inheritance. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul is moving in chapter 1 to tell us that that which is Jesus Christ, his dominion, his authority, the things that have been subjected under him, that he has all power and authority and control and purpose, that all of that is now ours when we are in him, that it is now our inheritance that has been given to us as sons and daughters of the Father. You see, Ephesians 1, Psalm chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 15 all of these passages that are so intimately tied together are given to us. They are designed for us that we, when we are doubting our, our dignity, our worth, our value, when we're wondering who are we, what eternal significance is there in our lives, in what we're doing, in who we are, when that's our question, these passages are meant to direct our attention to the things that we cannot see, that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard of the truths that at this present time are not visible to us, of the e eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching through Psalm 8. And at one point as he's preaching through the psalm, he stopped and he said, you know, he said so many people will tell, and he said it in a beautiful British accent. I'm not going to try and replicate it. He, he said, many people will tell me, why are you not speaking more of disarmament? And why are you not speaking more of nuclear bombs? And why are you not advocating and encouraging your people to be involved in politics and to go out into the world and to work on social issues? Why are you not speaking of these things? Why do you continue speaking of the gospel? So pie in the sky. It's hope, but it's not really hopeful. It's simply a bunch of nice words. And, and he said, at that moment as he's preaching to his congregation, he said, because the hope, our hope is the hope of salvation. 
It's the hope of the gospel, of an eternal inheritance. And we forget that every week. And we lose sight of that. And we need to be reminded of that, that the proclamation of the good news from the pulpit, of our older brother, of the one who has gone before us, the second Adam, the greater Moses, the greater Isaac, the greater David that we just sung about, that he goes before us to secure an inheritance for us, that we must be reminded of that week in and week out, lest we lose sight of this great hope that we have. That's our dignity, and that's our value. I kind of hope as I was thinking about this, I wish there was a way, maybe you, no, you can't do this. I wish there was a way, an organization where they, you pay them your money, they send you a test tube, you spit in the tube, you send it away, they send it back, and you get this report and it says, wow, you are a son or daughter of the king. Wouldn't that be cool? It sends you like a family tree and you post it up on your wall and you realize who you are in Christ Jesus and you're reminded every day. Wouldn't that be great? You'd frame that and stick it on your wall, wouldn't you? That's what this psalm is doing. This psalm is simply reminding us that we are his that we have been crowned with glory and honor by the living God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that in this moment, we are, we are simply waiting for the coronation. We're waiting for the celebration. We're waiting for, the, for what is now expected and coming. We're waiting for that to become reality. At the moment, we don't see it, but we ought not lose hope. For what is man, oh God, that you have been mindful of him? What is the son of man that you have cared for him? For you have crowned him, Jesus Christ, your son. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And because you have done that in your son, Jesus Christ, we who by faith trust in him also have all things through him. This is the hope of the gospel. It's the good news. It's where our dignity, value, and worth can be found. For when I feel like I lack dignity, Psalm 8 tells me that God crowns me with glory and honor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Help us never to grow tired, weary, We're bored with the gospel. May we never think ourselves so smart, so wise, so brilliant to move from the basic reality that I am a sinner lost in the fall, incapable of moving towards you, that Christ Jesus died for me And that through him, I am more loved, desired, cared for, provided for than I will ever know. And that though in this world my eyes do not clearly see, yet it remains true that I'm a prince or a princess, that I am of the family of God that I'm adopted by the creator and the sustainer of the universe, that the blood of Christ Jesus has paid the price, that there is now no condemnation because I am in Christ Jesus.
May that truth never get old. May we rest in it, meditate upon it, sing of it, pray about it, share it in our homes, speak of it, write it down, remember it, pray about it. May we proclaim it to the world. May it be in our dreams. May we remember it to our dying day that you have crowned us with glory and honor through your Son. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Son. We ask, Spirit, that you'd be at work here now, inhabiting our praises and working among us. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.